0: Welcome to Humanly, the podcast searching for the truth about health and wellness. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Welcome along, everyone. This is Humanly, and my name is Daniel Reuters. And today I'm joined by Dr. Mark Bailey. Okay, Mark. How are you?
1: Daniel, I'm doing really well, thanks. Thank you for having me on your show.
0: No worries. I uh, spoke with your wife, your lovely wife, a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Sam Bailey, and we had a great chat. And I've been following her work for a couple of years now. And I've heard her mention that she's got an amazing partner doing some research and writing and investigation in the background for her. And I always wondered, like, oh, I wonder if, if he's on board with her position. And you we were sort of saying before we started recording today that you were, um, you were on board. And it's really great to have you on the podcast today. I can pick your brain about a few things I've got questions around so welcome
1: thank you looking forward to it
0: so maybe to begin with just a brief introduction just who you are and what your journey has been like maybe throughout your career as a doctor because i know you left medicine well before the, the whole pandemic thing so yeah would you mind just giving a quick sort of rundown of your history
1: sure yeah well um based here in Christchurch for New Zealand for pretty much my entire life, um, along with um, my wife, Sam, who you mentioned. And, yeah, so I trained uh, traditionally as a doctor at um, Otago Medical School, and I finished my degree in 1999 and then commenced work as a house surgeon um, after that. And I had a couple, couple of years working in the hospital, but uh, to be honest, the whole, the, med- the medical system never really gelled with me from the start. I sort of had a few speed wobbles along the way. And the first was during medical school when I started reading material that we weren't supposed to read. Um, and I guess now I recognize it as terrain theory. Um, I recognize it today of what the mainstream would call anti-vax literature, but you know, I started reading this stuff as a student and it certainly, it piqued my interest. And I thought, um, you know, this it certainly wasn't as crazy as what the doctors that were teaching me were saying. They were sort of saying, don't look at this material. These, these are quacks, crackpots, etc." cetera. Um, but that, that was the first time I sort of opened my eyes to this, this wider world, that there was more than just the medical models to explain human health. So, yeah, and sort of as I got towards the end of my medical school training, um, I was also a very good athlete, like as a junior athlete, I'd represented New Zealand in running like in the New Zealand cross country team. And so I had that going on on the side as well. And after about uh, two years of being a house surgeon, so my first two years working, I decided to focus full time on being an athlete. So I became a professional geo-athlete, so running and cycling. Um, so you know, like triathlon, but in the run bike run format, I could do triathlon, but I was never quite so good at swimming. Um, but yeah, I had five years basically as a professional geo-athlete. Absolutely loved it. Uh, learned an incredible amount about the human body, like how far you could push it, the kind of training loads that you could put your body under maybe when training loads got too much and the body started to to decompensate. Um, But a a fascinating insight into human physiology and an interesting personal experience, particularly when, you know, doing sort of seven, eight hour training days on the the running and biking, um, it it takes you to some really interesting places, um, to say the least, um, both uh, physically and uh, spiritually. So, yeah, that was an interesting kind of chapter. and But during that five years, um, it, was, uh, you know, it wasn't like I got out of medicine completely. Like I kept my practicing certificate and I worked usually two days a week over most of that five years and worked in everything pretty much, mainly non-surgical specialties, but any kind of specialty you can imagine from psychiatry to oncology, hematology, Uh, nephrology just worked in absolutely all of them basically to get a really good rounding of of what um, the various specialties did so 2007 I was um, I turned 30 and uh, by then I'd sort of had enough of uh, doing the full-time sports um, partly because I I think I'd hit pretty much peak um, physical condition and I'd got into the top 10 in the world a few times um, but I found, you know, to try and get into the top three uh, was just starting to get a little bit frustrating to say the least. So I thought at age 30, you know, I'd had enough and, um, it was actually the same year that I met Sam. So oh, right. it was a good time to kind of, um, stop the seven, eight hour training days and, um, and spend time with Sam. So, so that's when we first came together and, um, you know, we were, we just hit it off from the start we kind of, um, I guess you could say, you know, I guess I corrupted her with um, (laughs) some of my alternative medical stuff, because at that stage, she had really only just started working. She'd just been in practice um, for a year and a bit um, at that stage. And um, I sort of opened her eyes to the fact that there was a lot of problems um, with medicine. Um, And that a lot of the treatments we were giving were probably more harmful than good. Mm -hmm. Um, And that there was this alternative uh, world of other models involving human uh, health and treatments, um, etc. But the two of us, uh, yeah, we worked um, really close together uh, when we did hospital medicine and um, yeah, got married in 2009 And soon after that, we both moved into private practice and did um, uh, various different things. I was mainly at that stage concentrating on musculoskeletal medicine and started doing postgraduate qualifications in that and also specialty exams. And I almost got to the point where I was a a consultant in musculoskeletal medicine uh, and then decided that, um, yeah, I really didn't want to do medicine any longer so for the last couple of years I continued to work um, part-time clinics a few days a week Um, and when 2016 came along I decided that that was it I just uh, closed up my uh, clinical practice and um, decided that I was going to get out of medicine completely which I did and thought that there's no way I'll get involved in any medical matters ever again (laughs) Until uh, and and then had three years, great time doing other things, you know, um, spending a lot of time with our kids, um, working with my brother who did property developments. Um, So we we did that for a few years, just building residential complexes and uh, running a few different investments and, and really just enjoyed my time doing something completely different. And then end of 2019, the whole rumors start circulating about this, you know, new virus coming out of Wuhan. And uh, something felt so wrong from the start. And I talked to some of my old colleagues and they seemed to buy into the narrative, you know, that there was this deadly virus that was gonna sweep around the world. And by early 2020, Sam and I were both, we were reading everything that we could get, all the publications, everything that WHO was saying, we were doing an analysis of, we were looking at the references, we were trying to get to grips with virology because it was mm-hmm. relatively... We'd, we'd been taught it at medical school, but yep. we didn't have um, the depth of knowledge that was required at that point to really look at the papers and work out what they were talking about when they said they found this new virus. So certainly by early 2020, uh, I was back involved again, fully immersed um, in medical research, basically. So not practicing, but just... Um, Uh, analyzing everything that was that was coming out and this sort of coincided with when sam set up her youtube channel and initially she was just going to do general topics Um, and she may have talked about this with you but um you know it was just just anything basically something about um, a medication or a common health condition but then of course with the whole covid situation she decided to make a couple of um videos about the situation and and share some of our early insights that maybe it wasn't what people thought it was. And yeah, obviously it created a lot of attention. And she went from having a little uh channel to having, you know, hundreds of thousands of subscribers and quickly came to the attention of the censors and the medical authorities and uh you know the rest is history basically since then. Um, mm. So yeah, but essentially, initially, I was very much behind the scenes, um, particularly in 2020, when I was just researching. Um, I I probably spend um, a lot more of the time having to read all the boring papers and stuff, um, and then distill the information. And then Sam decides what to present to the public. Um, Probably my habit is to get a little bit too technical sometimes. And and try and present something, which I think is, well, this is really high level and this is impressive, but Sam will just say we have got to present it in a way that your average person can understand. And I think she's had a lot of success explaining things like um, the PCR or mm. how they, you know, supposedly isolate viruses or how tests work, you know, when, when a patient is sick or that kind of thing. So, yeah. And it was really um. So we we're doing that, and had a really good recipe there. And then was it was last year actually a New Zealand filmmaker uh, Graham Moffat. He was chatting with us, and um, he said to me, "Why aren't you <laughs> giving out in public?" Yeah. and I said, "No, it's, I said look, it's it's Sam's channel. It's her thing." And he said, "No, I disagree." He said, "I think uh, seeing you today, I said you need to you need to show up and show that you're right next to Sam during this." whole process and uh and initially i was i must admit i was skeptical but it was it was such a great reception when i started uh, appearing publicly more often um whether uh, online or doing talks here in new zealand to live audiences and uh it was right from the start i was really surprised got such a positive response and and so many people said that they were so happy to see that sam and i were doing it together
0: Mm. because
1: like you were saying earlier you always start to wonder, oh, is is the husband or the wife going to be on board with what they're doing? (laughs) And is this causing total chaos? But I mean, for us, like we just, we absolutely love it. Um, And to us, it doesn't even feel like work. And I think for the first time for both of us as doctors, we feel like we're really just following a path of truth and we're really able to, to do exactly what we want to do and we realized that when we were inside the medical system, and you know, getting practicing certificates and all that, the compromises that you have to make are just just too much. Basically, um, the truth goes out the door, and you're expected to follow a whole lot of guidelines, which often have nothing to do with the best evidence or the interests of the public. So, yeah, I guess that's a sort of uh, a long-winded uh, story of uh, a bit of background.
0: No, it's great. It's a great overview of your experience in your journey to get to this point, because it's not often you'd hear someone with your sort of credentials questioning the fact that a virus may not cause disease or may not even exist in the first place. So I think it's really important for people like yourself to speak out. And I want to say thank you for doing what you're doing. I, I think we need more people like you and, and your wife doing these things and um, for humanity. I think it's really important. And was there a, like, I know you said when you were in uni that you were sort of looking at terrain theory a little bit and and sort of questioning things, but was there a straw that broke the camel's back for you in like early 2020 when you're like, hang on a second, there may not be a virus. Or were you sort of aware that there mightn't be a virus even before the whole COVID thing? Like how, how did that happen for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, up till 2019, like the majority of people and certainly like doctors who are trained in the system, I I just assumed that viruses had been proven to exist and proven to cause disease. Now, I was shown, obviously, during my training, I was shown pictures of what were said to be viruses under the electron microscope. I was shown uh, various tests, like antibody tests, That you could do Um, you know you could order these blood tests on patients and they were said to prove that the patient had the virus or had been exposed to it obviously i thought there were vaccines that were based on viruses you know because the packet said live virus or uh, attenuated virus and i thought okay well the virus must exist if it's written on the side of the packet Uh, but yeah early 2020 i was I think well, it might've been actually 2019. I was listening to a podcast, but it was to do with mainly financial stuff. Mm. And the host said HIV doesn't exist. And he just, he just threw it in there. <laughs> and and I, I had a lot of respect for this podcaster because you know he was giving really good advice about financial matters. And uh, I, I'd been really impressed. Mm. And I thought that's a bit odd that he threw that one in there. And I just dismissed it. And then about two weeks later, I think it must have been about um, November, December um, 2019, another, someone else said it as well. And this guy was like a PhD doctor. And he said it's one of the biggest hoaxes ever, HIV. And that really, I, okay, I thought this is crazy. This is two people in two weeks have said the same thing. <laughs> and to be honest, um, I, I didn't even know that was a thing, questioning whether the viruses existed. So I started looking at the literature and of course, all the mainstream stuff says, no, 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 that's just um, crackpot theory. Uh, but I thought there must be something out there and someone that's written more extensively about this topic. And that's when I found Virus Mania, which was at that stage, the second edition mm.
0: uh,
1: written by Klaus online and uh, Torsten Engelbrecht. And so I ordered the book straight away and read it in like a day when it arrived and it absolutely caused a paradigm shift. Um, And some of the most influential stuff in the book was from uh, the Perth group, you know, based in Australia. And I saw the arguments that they put forward. And as I say, I didn't even know that questioning the existence of viruses was the thing. And it was um, just, it seemed so exciting to me that um, this is is a rock that needs to be uh, turned over and and examined. So it was early 2020, and that's when I said to Sam, I I said, sit down, I'm going to tell you something crazy, but I think that these viruses, I'm not sure about all of them at this stage, I said, I think some of them don't exist. And I said, HIV seems to be one, the particle itself doesn't exist. I said, it's nothing to do with AIDS, that's real, but the HIV particle doesn't exist. And I said to Sam, you've you've got to read this book, you know, Virus Mania. And so she read it and had a similar kind of paradigm shift and thought this is both of us. We just could see this whole other world that needed to be explored. And so what was funny is that Sam started making videos with her new knowledge, you know, and a few months later, Torsten Engelbrecht, one of the authors, gets in touch with her and says, wow, it looks like we're on the same page here. Oh, cool. (laughs) Um, yeah. Amazing what you're coming up with. And, and Sam said, well, it's because, you know, we've read your book and, mm. um, you know, that's why we're on the same page. And um, they, they just got talking. And within weeks, um, Sam was brought on board as, as a co-author um, for the third edition, which came out in early 2021. So, yeah, that was kind of how we got exposed to the uh, possibility that there is no viruses. And I think Since that time, we've done all our own original research. And I guess every single time we look for the evidence of a pathogenic virus, uh, we can't find one. So I guess my position is is that I can't categorically say that pathogenic viruses don't exist. What I can say is that there's no evidence that I can see that they exist. So either we have to... um, you know, refine the techniques that are being used, um, the current methodologies, which are completely unsatisfactory, uh, or we have to um, look a bit harder. But to be honest, I I think it's unlikely that there's any pathogenic viruses uh, on the planet. I think what's happened is that there's been a lot of mistakes with um, misattributing various findings, um, whether they're pictures or uh, molecular detection techniques, antibodies, people getting sick, all this kind of stuff. Um, I think people have just come up with the story that it's a virus causing all of these things, when in fact, when you examine all the evidence, you can find, you you can get all of these findings without a virus. You simply, you don't need one in the equation. So yeah, I think that's where we're at. We're still, I mean, we're still open-minded because I think it's foolish to close down the possibility of something, and as scientists, that's what we should do. We should always say, well, maybe it's possible. Um, so we should always allow the door to be open. But I think uh, it's looking incredibly unlikely that there are any viruses. And I think, unfortunately, what's happened is that um, the proponents of viral theory have drifted so far off the scientific method now that it's really hard to pull them back out of the hole that they've fallen into. Yeah. And, and if you actually look at you know, what the scientific method involves, it involves absolute skepticism about your results you should basically publish something and then say to everyone look this is probably wrong um please pick holes in it tell us where we got it wrong um, how we could improve it um, and people should try and replicate exactly what they did to see if they got the same results but we simply don't see that anymore what we see is a paper gets published and you know we saw this coming out of wuhan Um, Fan Wu publishes a paper and says hey I found the coronavirus you know it's a brand new one and then instead of people saying well that's probably unlikely let's go and repeat the tests and do it again everyone else takes that paper and says well that's been established so let's use that as our our baseline our control and start uh, doing our own thing over here and it's simply it's not the scientific method Um, and It's almost like become, you know, scientism um, and Mm. and a cult, what's going on here. And I think as you well know, those of us that point out that there's problems with their methodology and their evidence, um, their reaction is not a scientific debate. It's a smear campaign uh, ad hominem attacks
0: and and anything but science. Yeah, absolutely. And, you bring up some really valid points there and I sort of want to elaborate on a little bit of what you've said. So what is the method that you would like to see? What experiment would you like to see done to show that a virus causes disease? And what are the gaps in the experiments that have been done to say there is a a virus that make you question the existence of, of pathogenic viruses?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, what we need to start with is what the definition of a virus is. And it is surprising how many times you ask someone, even a doctor, what a virus is that they can't actually answer. And they give you these kind of roundabout explanations like, oh, it causes smallpox. Um, yeah, that's, that's, you know, it causes measles. Or they say it's an infectious thing. Um, but they don't actually give you the formal definition. And, and that's, you know, it's a tiny particle, usually in the nanoscale, you know, something like 100 uh, nanometers in terms of its uh, diameter that it's supposed to be. It's supposed to have a genome, the genetic code, which can be RNA or DNA. It's supposed to have a, a protein type coat surrounding it. And it has to be an obligate. So it has to be an intracellular parasite. So it has to be able to not only get inside a host, but then be replication competent and uh, more copies are made within the host cell. And then it comes out of the host cell and infects other hosts potentially and causes some disease. So I think you need to show all of those steps. You can't just show bits and pieces of them and say that you've proved that there's a virus. You have to do you know, absolutely all of them. So, in terms of how we would do that, so first of all, we'd have to find a sick organism, whether it's a, a plant or a, an insect or a human. And we'd have to say that it's got a particular illness that we can recognize as particular features. Then we have to try and get, isolate the apparent virus from that organism. Now, ideally you'd just do that directly from the organism itself. So you'd just take a sample, maybe like a blood test or saliva, and then you'd uh, potentially process it with a, a centrifuge or something like that. But you'd try and find the particle inside the organism that has the disease. Now, unfortunately, that's never happened. Mm. And that caused major problems um, in the 1900s, when, even when the electron microscope was invented um, in the early 1930s they thought they'd just be able to take samples from people who were sick and then find these alleged viruses inside them. But unfortunately that didn't really work out for them and Mm -hmm. no matter how hard they looked. um, And I think a lot of the public don't understand that is that it doesn't matter how sick a person or an animal is. They they never find a virus inside that person, you know, directly from the person. Mm -hmm. And this is even, people that are riddled with diseases um, like AIDS, you know, and supposedly they've got this huge amount of HIV in their system. And yet when you take a blood sample, you can't find one, you can't find any of these particles, you it's know, you just don't see them. So that's um, that, that of course is a major problem. And it it means that you can't get past step one of Cox postulates, mm-hmm. which is why you often hear people say, well, we can't do Cox postulates for viruses. I mean, technically you could, it's just that they've never got past step one. And that's why they don't want to do anything more to do with Cox postulates um, It's because of that reason. So the next step, um, because they're unable to do that, they resort to cultures, you know, what they call cell cultures, mm. um, which realistically should be called tissue cultures because it's just a whole lot of biological soup, basically um, with some sort of host cell in there. But Again, there's some major problems with the techniques they use to do these cultures. One is that they often use cells which are already abnormal. So they might be cancer cells. They might be like Vero cells, which um, are monkey kidney cells, but they are genetically abnormal. They're not normal cells. And often they're not from the same species that you're you know, testing this alleged virus on which is problematic too. Um, And then they're often not from the same type of tissue. So you might say this, you know, made up virus SARS-CoV-2, it's supposed to affect human respiratory cells, you know, uh, like lung tissue. But they end up using abnormal uh, monkey kidney cells to do their experiment. And you think, well, what's that got to do with, um, it's a different species and it's a different organ. But the reason is, is because those types of cells are more reactive in the test tube. So if you put in, if we took cells from you, for instance, and you're healthy, your lung cells aren't going to do anything because they're they're just too resilient basically. Right. So whatever mixture you add to them in the test tube, you don't get all these breakdown reactions, which they end up attributing to viruses. So, yeah, so we've got problems with the way they do the cultures and then They, you know, you're probably locked into some of the stuff, but not only do they have their uh, monkey kidney uh, cells in there, but then they add a whole lot of other stuff. Like they add cow's blood, they add antibiotics, antifungals, um, various other types of chemicals. And then if that doesn't work, they passage, you know, the sample, which is when they take out um, a small amount of the cells and then reintroduce them to more antibiotics and more cow's blood and more toxic chemicals. And they may do that several times. And eventually if they see some sort of reaction um, and cell breakdown, they say, well, that must be the virus. (laughs) And the problem is, is that it's been shown that most of the time they don't do um, valid control experiments. Mm. Um, And uh, sometimes they say they did a mock experiment, but you actually, if you get in touch with the authors and say, what did you do? it's often not a valid control, like they didn't add any biological material from a human, say, mm. you know, they'll, they'll put in their kidney cells, their antibiotics, their um, cow blood, etc. But then they don't add any human tissue. And really, that's, that's the key is that if you're not doing that, you don't have a valid control experiment. And, and probably there should be two controls. One should be um, you know, a human sample from someone who's completely well, and another could be from someone who's unwell with a similar condition, but said not to be from the virus that they're trying to investigate. So, but as I say, they never kind of do these valid controls. And we know now that you can simply do those culture experiments, and just by stressing the um, cells in the tube, eventually they break down um, the so called cytopathic effect. And they start producing vesicles, and sometimes at that point they take some, uh, you know, electron micrograph images and say, "Well, there's the virus; it's coming out of the cells, or it's in the cells, and it caused it to break down." But I mean, simply taking pictures like that doesn't prove anything. I mean, all we're looking at is vesicles, and they look exactly the same as other vesicles that mm-hmm. come out of uh, mammalian cells, and what I find deceives people is that somebody puts an arrow or a circle on one of these bubbles and goes, that's the virus. (laughs) And it's, it's bizarre because you're sitting there going, I don't understand how they're claiming that that particle came um, and destroyed the cell, you know, for all we know, it's just a vesicle doing what they do, you know? So yeah, I think that's a major problem. And then, you get into the issues of other indirect techniques like um, the genetic stuff, finding genetic sequences. Um, One way is just through PCR. Um, But again, that tells you nothing because you don't know where the genetic fragments came from. So, you know, they've got a test tube and it's full of all this material. Um, Nobody managed to purify anything or demonstrate where the uh, genetic material came from but they simply run a PCR or do genomic sequencing and then say, wow, that came from the virus. But again, there's absolutely no proof of that. So yeah, so to this day, if we look at uh, all you know viruses that are alleged to exist, um, we've got the same problems of no one's actually demonstrated that it's the particles by themselves that are causing the cells to break down that are causing disease in other people or are able to transmit um, from person to person or animal to animal instead we've just got various um indirect kind of techniques so yeah so to come back to your question of how it's what we actually need to do if, if they're going to tell us that there are pathogenic viruses is that if they can't find them inside people which is a bad sign to start with then they've got to do one of these culture experiments and then they have to take those particles that are coming out of those cell culture experiments, and they've got to properly purify them. And there's various ways to do that with filters, but usually with um, centrifugation, like if you do a density gradient and you try and get the particles purified uh, in a band. So and you can confirm, this is where electron microscopy is good to confirm that you've got purified particles that they all look exactly the same, the same morphology, same size, and then take those purified particles and show, demonstrate what they can do. Like, uh, you know, spray them in the air, um, you know, spray them into an animal's cage, or if you're doing a human experiment, just, you know, spray them in our face and, and see if those particles by themselves do anything. But I think there's a problem. They don't, they don't do anything. And that's, that's the whole issue. So That's why I feel there there are no pathogenic viruses because I think they would have done those um, experiments and they would have been, um, you know, so easy to do basically that all we see now is a whole lot of excuses as to why they can't do them.
0: And it's not like they haven't tried to do those experiments where they've taken a sick person and put them into contact with a healthy person or even taken the biological fluids from a sick person and exposed it to a healthy person in every which way possible and made that healthy person sick with the sick sick person's disease. They have tried to do that and they failed. And I don't think a lot of people realize just how desperate they were getting, especially in the early 1900s with a lot of these experiments trying to infect people with measles and chicken pox and influenza, and they couldn't do it. so that in itself would sort of make you question without even going and doing all these cell culture experiments that hang on, maybe this isn't the way that a virus is, is transmitted or, or the, what, what we observe as, as contagion.
1: Absolutely. And yeah, this, this goes deep because it's, it's not just viruses. It's all microorganisms because, and I think we have to be clear, we, we're talking about, yeah, like you say, contagion in the sense of, it's going from host to host via a microorganism, whether that's bacteria or a made up virus. And yeah, the, the clinical experiments, they, they, you, you know, you never get ethical approval to do them these, days, Not these because, days. No, you've probably seen some of them. They do wacky stuff. Like, you know, injecting blood out of one person into another person, um, you know, taking um, various biological fluids and pouring them into people's throats and spraying them in their eyes, all sorts of stuff, you know, which, which couldn't really be done these days. And you're quite correct. Uh, They tried with so many different diseases, uh, but couldn't influenza is the classic one. If you look up, um, of course, there's the 1918, the Rosenau experiments were really famous with hundred volunteers couldn't, you know, couldn't transmit one case of flu to these 100 healthy volunteers and since then there's been a few other um flu transmission studies that they tried to do which um again failed 100 percent of the time and what's interesting is if you read anything about influenza they'll say that it's highly contagious but then strangely don't mention all of the studies over history which have completely failed to you know to show that it is transmissible in that fashion Mm -hmm. Um, we find it fascinating because yeah, we've got a whole textbooks on influenza and it's really amusing because not once do any of them mention all of these failed experiments and instead yeah. they look at indirect things and they'll talk about oh yeah, you know, in 1976 there was such a bad outbreak of influenza and it spread so quickly and you know these were the R values and all this kind of stuff and you realise it's all complete rubbish because they never demonstrated transmission at all basically. And similarly, when people say things like um, chicken pox and measles are highly contagious and transmit via the aerosol route, and you'll see some claim that even being in the room with the person for 30 seconds could put you at risk. But then you look historically at the studies that they actually did, you know, sometimes with children, sometimes with monkeys, they never demonstrated any aerosol transmission. You know, typically, they'd take if one um, animal or child had some sort of um, vesicles on their skin, they'd aspirate some of the fluid and then they'd go and inject it directly into another subject and then get some sort of skin reaction, which sort of looked like the um, the donor's skin reaction. You know. And sometimes they wouldn't get systemically unwell, so no fever or anything like that. And then they'd say, well, that proves that there's a virus and it's transmitting. And you think, well, that's not, nature doesn't do that. That's ridiculous, having to take the fluids and inject it into another subject. And we see the same Mickey Mouse kind of stuff going on with um, animal experiments in general. And, you know, we we saw that with SARS-1 where they took monkeys and just poured biological muck into their lungs, you know, and lots of it, like relative to the size of the monkey. And I mean, it's just absolutely stupid because if you pour these liquids into any subject, you'll get reactions, like they will cough and they may get some, some lung damage. Uh, but typically they never get the same symptoms that the disease is supposed to come with. Mm. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, um, and I think it's a real problem because when I trained as a doctor, I was never taught any of this stuff. Um, you know, I got given this version, uh, microbiology book that just had chapters about measles or chicken pox or HIV. And that just give you this version that it's a very infectious, um, particle. This is what it looks like. Um, this is how many people have got it. This is how you treat it. Um, there was nothing in there that said, oh, and by the way, there's actually never been a transmission demonstrated once in history. Um, You know, you think that would be kind of the key point, Mm. but strangely absent.
0: They don't tell you that. Yeah. And do you think it's the same for bacteria as well? Because obviously there are diseases that are caused or are said to be caused by bacteria. So things like scarlet fever, for example, was a bacterial Mm -hmm. disease, which seemed to just vanish into thin air. Yeah. Um, what's your perspective on bacteria and disease?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've got the same problem of just them not being able to demonstrate that there's contagion. Now with bacteria, we can certainly identify them and we can isolate them properly, purify them. We know their composition. We can do experiments with them, et cetera. So we're in a different category now than viruses, which are hypothetical and seemingly non-existent. But even with bacteria, yeah, if you look up, I mean, one thing we found really interesting was looking up um, uh, Koch and Pasteur, you know, the famous germ theorists, the fathers of germ theory, and actually looking at their original studies. And you probably know Pasteur's work is just highly fraudulent. He was just making stuff up, um, Mm. essentially. But even with with Koch's work, um, some of it, I was, like, really surprised at how it didn't really demonstrate contagion. You know, he'd have these animals in cages for months and then say that they got tuberculosis off each other. And looking at the experiment, you thought there was no kind of control experiment, like putting an animal in a cage in a laboratory and then giving it various stresses is going to to make it sick, basically. And you haven't established that the primary cause of the disease was a a bacteria coming and you know, jumping into their lungs and and making them sick. So, but I don't, again, I don't think that's appreciated by the vast majority of the medical profession, certainly, because they just read the microbiology books that they get given and they go, oh here's Cox postulates and that's how you work out whether a microbe causes disease. There's no, they don't say that that wasn't really done properly, mm. and that the control experiments weren't done in those days um, and haven't been done ever since. And what what they tend to find is associations. So, you know, you'll see something like um, well, herping cough is a classic because you know they say that the disease is caused by Bordetella pertussis. You know, this very specific bacteria, but then you know, they get into trouble because then you find um, more sensitive ways to check for the presence of border teller. And one of those ways is PCR. And then they, you know, and PCR in this application definitely has problems for diagnostics, but it probably can detect whether there is border teller if you do a good PCR design. Right. And what they find is that he, lots and lots of people have border teller in their lungs. Yeah. But they're not sick. Yeah. And there's many people like myself. I've never had um, some sort of coughing illness. Like some people seem to get these really bad coughs and stuff. But you know, in my lifetime, I've never had anything like that. And um, yeah. I'm inhaling all the same microbes as everyone else. Right. And no doubt, I've got some Bordetella in my lungs or have at least had them in there before. But there's no way I'm getting whooping cough. And mm. It's nothing to do with uh, vaccines either, because we know that despite the fact in countries like ours where they vaccinate a lot of people um, for whooping cough, um, people still seem to get it, you know. But my point is, is that the the presence of the bug doesn't do anything. And probably most people are walking around with small quantities of what are said to be pathogens. But clearly for the vast majority of people, they, they don't do anything. And yeah, I know that you've looked into terrain theory and you know that in order for a microbe to appear to be a pathogen, there has to be an underlying change in the the host tissue. So in the lungs, that could be like a a toxic insult, you know, whether it's a really cold air or something, which actually physically damages the lung. It could be um, chemicals like uh, smoking, uh, air pollution, all that kind of stuff. Can, can damage the lungs. It could be a, a malnourishment, you know, vitamin and mineral deficiencies, which cause the lungs to malfunction. It could be another form of toxicity in the body, which tries to clear itself through the lungs um, and creates a whole lot of um, dead tissue that's trying to get out. And in all of these situations, you're going to get a potential proliferation of microbes, but they're not, they didn't cause the problem. They're just reacting to the problem and they're doing what they do, which is gobble up dead tissue when it appears, because if they didn't do that, life on our planet would be finished. Um, it would be over. I mean, we, we need this. We need dead tissue to be metabolized, you know, reprocessed basically. Um, and, and put back in the system again for more life to go forward. But yeah, I think it's the biggest misunderstanding of, you um, you know, yeah, and I think it's a paradigm shift and I don't know if this has happened for you, but you go from thinking that, you know, bugs are a bit of a problem. Um, You've got to be careful. They might get you to, to appreciating that it's all driving life forward and there's no bad bugs or anything like that. They all just have different roles to do depending on, on what's happening. And, you know, if someone says that they've got a bacterial infection, it sort of implies that the bacteria has caused them this problem. Whereas you can always find that something went wrong first and uh, then the bacteria uh, moved in or proliferated and just did their thing. Uh, It's confusing too, because sometimes if someone gets really sick, uh, they can get a huge proliferation of microbes and the microbes themselves do produce toxins sometimes, which can be deadly. So, there's confusion with that as well of people who say, well, no, but actually the microbes are really dangerous. And yet, there are certain situations. Um, like if you have a lot of tissue damage, then the microbes um, themselves may start being damaging, but they're certainly not, they didn't trigger the whole thing. They didn't cause the person to become unwell.
0: Yeah, those microbes are coming to clean up the mess. Uh, and by the very virtue of metabolizing dead and dying tissue, you will get symptoms associated with that, which is the healing process. And as you said, they might produce toxins, which could then make you sick from that metabolic process of cleaning up the dead and dying tissue. And I was reading um, a paper the other day where they were looking at heavy metals in milk and they were showing I don't think this was actually in humans. It was in vitro, but they were showing that um, certain types of E. coli would proliferate when you put, uh, I think it was mercury into this tissue bacterial culture, certain types of E. coli, which are native to the human gut would proliferate and digest the heavy metals. So if someone had gastrointestinal symptoms, you do a stool sample or fecal sample and they've got an overgrowth of E. coli, say, oh, it's the E. coli's fault, but actually Mm. it might've been because you were drinking some heavy metals in your milk and now you're getting sick from that. So we're actually blaming the bacteria, which are there as our friends, they're they're there to clean up the mess. So it's sort of a war against nature in a way, isn't it?
1: Totally. Yeah. And, um, you know, when I worked in hospital medicine, I was taught yeah, the fallacies that um, you do a stool culture, and find out, you know, what's in there. And then if if something seems to be in there too much, you blame that. And then you chase after it with, you know, antibiotics. And then the patient seems to get even more problems. And uh, and then you try some other antibiotics and, you know, each uh, course of antibiotics is like a nuclear bomb going off inside your body. Basically it's, they might claim that some of them are selective, but, um, you know, that's just kind of marketing spin from the pharmaceutical companies. Your body basically, get such a um, marked reaction to e- even a day's worth of antibiotics can change your microbiome for months at a time. So yeah, yeah, no, totally. It's a misunderstanding and um, it's almost like a um, diagnostic dead end for, for, mainstream medicine because they think, Oh yeah, we've found the problem. It's um, it's this particular bacteria. And we just have to keep throwing antibiotics until it, um, you know, until it clears up when totally, and they miss the underlying cause, you know, what was it that triggered off that proliferation or the change in the, the microbiome uh, because your yeah, nature is trying to do something. And yeah, I like the word you used. It's more like a healing phase rather than a, a sick phase. Cause I think that's the other uh, issue with uh, a lot of mainstream medical practice is that sickness is viewed as something that needs to be combated with, um, you know, medications And, but we shouldn't call it sickness. We should say, look, the body's trying to heal and we need to assist it. And often we're missing the signals like nature's trying to tell us uh, what what to do, but we're we're not getting it right. And I always say to people because, you know, it's even some of um, our family members are still, they get hooked up on the mainstream medical model and they go, oh, but I think this medication could help me. And I always just say to them, Your body, the way it works is that it needs nutrients, vitamins. It needs the right kind of ingredients to be healthy. Those ingredients don't include chemicals. Um, And when you swallow or have chemicals injected, there's only one reaction that your body has, and it tries to get them out as soon as it can. Um, And I think once you appreciate that, you can understand health in a much much better way and if you can show people that look you're you're vitamin a deficient and your body's crying out for it and it's in a healing crisis right now and this vitamin will will help you know and you know the difference is huge compared to saying well you know i feel unwell and if i take this chemical then i'll feel better once again but there's no way that their body was deficient in that chemical. It's just, it's not a thing, you know, mm-hmm. and the complexities of when these chemicals are ingested. I mean, they have all sorts of effects that we, we can't imagine. Um, you know, we've traced a lot of the metabolism of various medications, but even, even for really common medications, it's still a lot unknown about what they do once they go inside the body. Um, and that would include things like paracetamol, which people, you know, take around the world every day as though it's you know completely safe and got no problems but you know to be honest I can't even think of the last time I, I took paracetamol I mean like most people I used to get an ache or a headache or something and think oh yeah take a couple of those whereas I think since having a different understanding of health nowadays I say why have I got a headache and you have to be honest with yourself and you find out why you've got it, you know, if you're really honest with yourself and um, you remedy it, uh, you don't pop a couple of pills and then continue abusing your body. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, yeah, it's amazing. I I used to work with doctors who would tell me that, um, you know, they'd take um, low sec for their stomachs mm-hmm. and just, you know, an, an anti-acid medication and I'd say why why and they'd say oh it's it's usually because you know when i drink alcohol and it really upsets my tummy and they said that if they take the low sec with the alcohol then everything seems to be okay <laughs> <laughs> and you just say no 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 your body has tried to tell you something hmm. like um it's yeah the alcohol or the type of alcohol or the amount is toxic um hmm. and you know taking an extra medication to make the symptoms disappear is not the answer. you know you're going to end up with, with major problems down down the line, you know and um, yeah again, it's just um, it, it's a complete um, paradigm shift from what we were taught in medical school because when you graduate, you've got this repertoire, you know hundreds of pharmaceuticals and techniques um, and then it's kind of like when you have this awakening you sort of go ah oh, most of them are pretty useless you know yeah um yeah yeah it's really it's sort of disappointing but in a way it's um you know you've got to get through that phase of saying look um it, it's um it's just not what is cracked up to be the the, the nowhere near I, I mean you've probably realized this too that um the a lot of allopathic doctors you know mainstream doctors are not in the business of curing people and it's not really a word that they even use um they they talk about treatment and management and all this kind of stuff and i think um that was really an eye-opener as well of going that you should aim to cure and if you're not curing someone you really have to ask you know are you on the right track here and um i think that's another a, a huge um paradigm shift that you have to make of actually aiming to get people back to complete balance. And, you know, it's, it's amazing because in the last two years um, and I think you've had guests talk about this too, is that you meet people who have quite advanced conditions and are really unwell and they actually reject their own training and their own medical system that they're part of. And find a way to heal themselves, and often for them, that is their awakening that um, you know there's there's something wrong with the the medical industry because it's not able to cure people.
0: Yeah, and unfortunately, you have to learn the hard way to realize that medicine doesn't hold a lot of the answers to um, our health issues. I- how are we going for time? So I know we've been going for about an hour now and I'm aware that you've got a young family, but there are some other questions that I really want to ask you. Are we okay to keep going or should we wrap it up yeah, shortly?
1: Yeah, definitely. No, we're good. I think um, our youngest one, uh, he's just six months old, but um, I can't hear anything upstairs. So okay. I think he he must be, he must be asleep. So oh, yeah, no,
0: we're good. Awesome. So the next question is what do you think is going on with this whole COVID-19 thing? If there's not a new disease, what do you think people are getting sick with if they're getting sick with anything new that they haven't been getting sick with for years prior? Um, What's your take there? I'm I'm really interested to hear your perspective.
1: Yeah, well... I don't, I mean, yeah, it's it's, where do you start with this thing? And what um, we've tended to do is to go back to the source material and say, was there any evidence of a virus? No. Was there any evidence of a novel condition? No. Mm -hmm. And what's happened is that I think, I mean, to me, it's a fraudulent situation. And I wrote a paper last year with um, my co-author, um, Dr. John Bevan Smith, and we called it the COVID-19 fraud and war on humanity because that's what we see it as. And in that, we point out that the COVID-19 is not a definable condition. It's essentially, in terms of a clinical, uh, you know, set of signs and symptoms, because all it is is a PCR test, or in more recent times, a rapid antigen test. Mm. And they say that's it, but I mean, in no time in history can I think of classifying an illness in that way, where it's solely based on a PCR process, you know, which as you're probably aware is not really a test even. I mean it's a manufacturing technique, it just amplifies genetic material. So I mean essentially it's just a PR campaign where they've confused people and they've said that there's this new virus which there's no evidence for they said that there's a new condition which is nonsensical when you look at the definition it's not a clinically definable specific illness and all that we have is um, a rollout of pcr kits and now rapid antigen kits which are not capable of telling anyone whether a person's sick or not and simply so anyone that's sick now and has one of these tests is just put down as a COVID-19 case. And it's, it's just absolutely obscene. I mean, they're trying to claim that this has killed five or 6 million people, which is, you know, one of the biggest frauds that we've ever seen in our lifetimes, basically, because not one of them has been proven to have died from a novel infection or novel virus. It's just, there's no evidence for that whatsoever. So in terms of yeah, your question about what is making people sick, I mean, there's it's just all of the usual things yeah. that are making people sick. You know, influenza, pneumonia. Um, you know, we've seen ridiculous cases where people are having heart attacks and strokes, and they're saying that this is due to COVID nineteen. Um, so yeah, we, we're basically it's a reclassification of illness, and but I think it's introduced more problems because you've got a a state of global psychosis, basically, and that makes people unwell. And you see it all the time, the fear, um, the anxiety in the population, and those factors alone make people sick. I mean, we were astounded back in 2020 going out for the first time during the, the lockdown and just the sense of how people just viewed you as being so dangerous to be around, that they'd walk across to the other side of the road, you know, literally, um or avoid coming anywhere near you and i mean all these things they make people sick it's it's not a healthy way to live so yeah and it's i think you can get into kind of waste of time arguments when you know people are like going well prove what happened in this country and prove what happened in this city and you know we just don't have all the information you know we know that um In a lot of countries, it was awful mismanagement of the populations. They just did terrible things, particularly to the elderly people who were really susceptible, you know, social isolation, um, not getting good nursing care, um, all that kind of stuff. And, I mean, when we look at it, particularly back in 2020, most of the people that were dying were the elderly. Um, Lots of countries had the average age of death of these made-up COVID cases was... Um, you know about 80 years old in the developed world so yeah it certainly wasn't affecting young people so yeah no the way i see it and as we outlined in our essay last year is that we're just witnessing a, a global fraud basically and um, there's absolutely no basis to it
0: and they're rolling out a treatment for this non-existent disease now for every single man woman and child on the face of the planet which is very concerning because for a number of reasons, like firstly, there's no informed consent. There's very well, basically no evidence to show that these treatments do anything to save anybody. Um, There's coercion going on and we're told, or this is sort of sold to us as it's safe and effective. And it's the only way that you're going to be able to protect your friends and family from getting sick. The opposite to that is true right you're possibly putting your health at risk by getting one of these injections
1: yeah absolutely i mean there's no point um getting an injection for a, a virus and a condition that doesn't exist and that's essentially what they've tricked people into doing i mean the because people talk about you know, bioweapons and all this kind of stuff, and they get confused because they think that it's a virus that was somehow made in a lab and released um, into the public and is passing around, but that's not what's happened. The weaponization is all to do with the injections themselves. So in terms of taking those spike protein sequences, which as far as we can see, they've been playing around with for about three decades now. Um, Mm. If you look back to there were patents on spike uh, protein sequencing uh, sequences dated back to about 1990 Um, and as far as i'm concerned all the research i've looked at shows that this spike protein is just a product that you can make in these cell uh you know these tissue culture experiments basically and they're a product of cell breakdown Um, what their exact function is it's hard to say but of course they've attributed it to coronaviruses in this made-up fiction and so the yeah, what people are being injected with is essentially a weapon because it makes if it works, um, it makes their body produce the spike protein segments and uh, the spike protein itself, and you, you don't want that in your body. It's um, it's pro-inflammatory. Um, it can basically, it's small, so it can go virtually anywhere in the body. It goes into the brain. It goes into virtually every organ. Same with the lipid nanoparticles by themselves, they're pro-inflammatory. They're not things that you want inside your body. They're so tiny that they basically go everywhere as well. Uh, and then you've got these other constituents, which haven't been declared like the graphene type particles, um, mm. which look, which are highly toxic as well. So there's this recipe of disaster, basically. You've got um, all these different constituents, which can cause um, inflammation inside the body. And, some people are getting reactions pretty quick. I think for others, it may take years before their reactions manifest, um, particularly if they get walled off areas of inflammation inside their bodies, which could eventually turn into what they call autoimmune conditions or potentially tumors, that sort of thing. And the other thing was, was that, um, you know, they, they did all their campaign to say that you know, these are not genetic therapies and these can't alter your DNA. I mean, I don't know that. I found it hard that they even got that one out of the gate because, I mean, they are genetic therapies. That's, that's what they are. They're injections of RNA. And to say that they can't alter your DNA is just, I mean, that's ridiculous. We've, we've known for um, 50 years that you have enzymes in your cells in normal mammalian cells like ours uh that have reverse transcriptase enzymes which convert rna back into dna i mean that's that's not a new concept and it it was known about and i'm not sure if you saw but there was a study that's just been published in the last week or so where they took you know human liver cells admittedly abnormal human liver cells but they put the Pfizer uh, BioNTech injection uh, and mixed it with these cells. And within six hours, the sequence had gone into the DNA of the cells. So it was like no time at all. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's absolutely crazy that um, I suspect they already knew this before they started injecting the populations. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if they hadn't already checked uh, whether there was genomic integration. I would say they know that from the early Pfizer trials because it's not that hard. In this application, we can actually use the PCR and it's quite useful because we're looking at DNA, uh, which is often easier to uh, sequence than mm-hmm. RNA. And also we're able to get a pure sample because you know we can get it from a human being and say it's definitely come from a human, <laughs> not a made-up virus. And we could just check with a well-designed PCR protocol to see is the sequence that they've been injected with isn't now permanently integrated into their genetic code. And I mean, it seems that there's a really high chance that it is. And, you know, this could uh, affect
0: hundreds of millions of people now. And that sort of brings me to my next question. What constitutes a human being? Is it our DNA? And if we start messing around and genetically modifying, because that's essentially what we're doing, right? We're genetically modifying the DNA of of people with these genetic therapies, because that's what they are. They're a gene therapy, they're not a vaccine. Are we still considered a human being if we've modified our genes?
1: Yeah, I guess now we're getting into uh, spiritual and... uh... Uh, other considerations. And yeah, I mean, to be clear, you know, I am not, um, an advocate of the, um, central dogma of biology, which is, you know, that we have a, a DNA code and that gets, um, transcribed into RNA and then that gets translated into the proteins and it just all flows in that direction. Um, I think when that was put forward by Francis Crick in the 1950s, I mean, he, he just basically asserted that uh, there was no, Exactly. Didn't see an experiment he did or anything. Yes. Um, and, and I would have thought that within a few years it was apparent that um, the central dogma didn't apply. But so I think um, that we um, are, are very complicated in terms of our interaction with the environment and that our, our DNA may change depending on environmental exposures and it it looks like it can certainly change with these experimental injections which are a terrible idea because it's not something that we'd encounter in nature um but yeah i mean i I think yeah you'll essentially yeah we're, we're dealing with now the the world we're in is that the humans may have genetic edits essentially and whether, yeah, whether or not you still call them what, what you classify them as. I mean, I wrote an article recently and uh, referred to them as GMOs um, because that's essentially what we refer to it if it's in agriculture or something like that. Yeah, um, that's sort I of it,
0: what my thinking goes. They
1: are modified. Um, but perhaps we should be more clear and say that they're artificially modified um, because maybe some of these modifications can happen under certain uh, pressures in nature but in this case it's a very artificial situation and i think it will end so badly like the whole promise of genetic editing and you know curing these diseases from the stuff i've looked at it's it's just pure fiction they've got nothing they're not going to be able to help anyone it's like this ridiculous um you know it, it's like a a child playing with something that's far beyond its comprehension. And Mm. uh, I think that the whole gene editing thing will just end up in a a total disaster basically. And those of us who reject it and understand what it means uh, to, to be healthy and to be connected with the universe are going to be doing a whole lot better.
0: Mm. And with the graphene oxide, do you think that's been confirmed beyond reasonable doubt that that is contained within the shots? And if it is, why do you think it's in the injections? What's its role?
1: It's definitely in there, I would say, because, um, yeah, it's interesting, actually. I've just in the last um, week had a friend um, do an analysis um, of a vial. And because, yeah, yeah, it's really because you get these kind of... um, we have secondhand accounts. Like we know people that know the people that do the analysis and you know how you sort of like, you definitely trust them because yep. these are good sources, but you always want someone a little bit closer. So for the first time in the last week, I've got a firsthand account of, you know, um, looking at what's inside these things and seeing mm-hmm. some um, video footage. And it's, it's absolutely crazy there's a few more experiments we want to do um and you know perhaps look at some other uh, vaccines under the microscope as well just to see what's inside those um but yeah i think it's beyond a doubt that the um the graphene is in there um i think it's beyond a doubt that there are self-assembling particles in there Uh, i've seen the video footage of the little particles self-assembling and but the nature of what they do, I I can't comment on. Um, And yeah, why they're in there. I mean, it's, yeah, the imagination can run wild. Um, You know, some people have tried to say it's just a a side effect of the manufacturing process. I think that would be highly unusual um, because there's a whole lot of other um, products that we have that don't have graphene in them. So yeah, it's um, yeah. I mean, yeah do you have any idea why they're <laughs> it's sort of like one of those conversations where you feel like you're going out on a limb because mm-hmm. you you know it could be something that's that's really bad
0: i i don't know and you know that's i don't like to speculate and that's like sort of another thing why i i don't like to make up reasons as to why i think people get sick when we we observe groups of people in a Location falling ill with the same thing. It's like, what makes us sick then if not a virus? Well, I don't like to just make up anything because that's how we got here in the first place, is we just said, oh, it's a virus. We just make it up. So I don't want to say the same thing with like graphene oxide and then later on down the track regret things that I've sort of said to lead people astray. So I've got I've got ideas, but I think we just have to wait and see what um, research sort of comes out there. There was a uh, I think it was a German PhD scientist talking about graphene oxide a little while ago, and he was saying that uh, they're very like thin, like uh, filaments, and they're like razor blades, and they can destroy the inside of the uh, endothelial lining in the blood vessels. And I was thinking, and I asked this to Dr. Kaufman when I had him on my podcast: Is it possible that those razor blade-like substances? Are destroying or damaging the endothelial tissue, and the spike proteins that we're seeing are just little bits of protein from the endothelium. Is that a possibility?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's two two different things going on. I think the, I mean, the mRNA is coded to produce the spike protein, and I presume that's happening in most people. Although, yeah, I have heard Andy Kaufman question whether people are even producing this spike protein at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but other researchers say that, yeah, it's definitely being detected uh, inside right. people even months after they've been injected. I think the, yeah, the real danger with graphene is like you say, it's um, it's really, it's so unusual in that the graphene plates can be one atom thick and your body's not designed to process it's not something it would ever encounter in nature and yeah we were looking at quite a few papers recently for one of sam's videos which showed that these graphene particles can just go straight through a cell like straight through human cells as though there's nothing there and i mean they can also cut um straight through genetic fragments like um I mean, the plates fit between the nucleotides in a <laughs> genetic sequence. I mean, that's how, how fine they are. And also at that level, they behave in all sorts of strange ways. And as you know, graphene's got unusual properties with um, conduction and the way it responds in um, various uh, electromagnetic fields. So, yeah, I mean, I've seen a few theories that, um, that it's the graphene itself that is causing a lot of the heart problems, but not through a um, cutting or lacerating type mechanism, but through conduction issues. uh, Because we know that if the graphene is in a biological entity, it will gravitate towards uh, where there's electrical activity. So in a human, that's going to be the heart um, and the brain are going to be areas where there's a, a great deal of electrical activity. So, that may be, um, you know, I've seen some people postulate that that's why we're seeing a lot of people have heart problems is because the graphene is um, interfering with conduction in the heart and causing problems. Because I must say, I mean, a lot of people I know have had heart problems. It's just a, a question of what exactly is the mechanism? Is it an inflammatory one through the spike protein or is it the graphene particles uh, themselves causing inflammation or is it the graphene particles causing conduction issues mm. in, with the electrical system? I, I just think it's its so many unknowns. And mm. um, yeah, we've, we've been a little bit more reserved on that stuff uh, because unlike uh, going back and looking at um, the history of virology and measles and coronaviruses and that where you have just so much in terms of research that you can read through, and um, you know experiments you can check and stuff the whole thing with the um, constituents of these injections is that it's just all new and yeah a lot of it's speculation at this stage but um, yeah I think there's there's just so many things in these injections which appear to be incredibly dangerous that um, yeah I mean no one in their right mind if they know anything about them should be getting them
0: injected into themselves yeah. I appreciate your perspective on that. I also wanted to ask you, do you think medicine is going to be able to redeem itself after all of this? I
1: think it's, it's, yeah, I know we, we talk about this too because uh, within New Zealand, there's hundreds of doctors that have really um, got out of the system or are half out of the system now. And a, a lot of them feel that, no, there's just, either the whole thing's going to collapse under its own uh, fraud or we're just going to go into different paradigms where we're going to have a medical system which is even more based on centralization um you know pharmaceuticalization if you want to for want of a better word um you know requirements to comply with the system like you know you can't access certain medical care unless you've done certain things like have certain injections etc and we may just get a a splitting of the system where many people realize that that's a toxic system and it's not the way forward and already in New Zealand there's um, parallel health organizations that have set up and are looking at much more uh, holistic models that are not reliant on government funding that are not reliant on um, pharmaceuticals um, so much. So, I think we, uh, in some ways, we should look at it as a really good opportunity. And I think for a lot of people, the last two years has been a huge awakening, um, not only for uh, medical practitioners and um, medically trained people like ourselves, but also for the public in general. And people need to decide which kind of um, model they want to get involved with and um, i think for a lot of people they've realized that the medical system is is not the way to go and i've never seen like in the last year so many people just contacting us saying that they are so dissatisfied with their doctors now and um you know they're deregistering from practices or just not even bothering going to see some of these doctors anymore
0: yeah yeah it's going to be interesting to see what happens and watching that scenario play out And sort of moving forward with what's happening with all of the pandemic issues and healthcare and government overreach, I mean, it's unfortunate that it happened, but in a way, as you said, it's a necessity and it's allowed a lot of people to wake up and I think it's been a blessing in disguise. What do you see the future like in the next 18 months? Do you think there's hope for humanity? I've still got hope for humanity.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Do you know for both Sam and I, we have this very, uh, much, uh, we're into a very present kind of mentality. Like, uh, we don't speculate about what might happen in the future. Um, so I I don't usually try and make predictions. We, we just usually focus on what's happening in the moment Mm -hmm. and doing the absolute best we can to be conscious and bring understanding and enlightenment into what's happening in that moment. I I mean, for sure. I mean, humanity is going to win. We just don't know when. And I'm not too worried, you know, if we go, you know, we've had this, this has happened many times in history where we've gone into dark periods and sometimes they can last for centuries and Mm -hmm. uh, everything goes backwards. But over time, you know, we we get there and we get uh, the consciousness keeps rising. And uh, I think things will definitely in the long run, I mean, it's, it's really optimistic. Um, I mean, we, we're certainly optimistic because, you know, we keep having kids and, um, you know, we are, and our kids, uh, you know, they can see our optimism and, uh, you know, uh, thriving at the moment. So that's, that's great to see. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm a great believer and you just uh, create your uh, reality and truth. So if, Um, we remain motivated and positive Uh, we're heading to a good place and I think if we get despondent and give up then that's what's going to happen it's gonna you know things are going to look awful so yeah I mean in some ways we've just whatever happens at the moment we just look to respond and lift our game even further so like you I see it as a a great opportunity um, the last two years and uh, now I'm sort of I'm grateful for what we've been given and um, for everything really that's happened, both in terms of um, our own personal uh, awakening and as well, recognizing a a greater awakening in this community around the world. Mm. Yeah. Optimistic.
0: Good. I'm glad to hear that. And I like that you live in the moment. Um, And you're right. We do create our own reality. Any final words, Mark? I'm going to let you get back to your family, but, um, yeah, if there's anything that you wanted to add that you feel like we haven't discussed or any sort of final concluding remarks.
1: No, I, um, I think we've, uh, covered a good amount there and, mm-hmm. um, you yeah, know, really enjoyed talking to you and I'll, uh, I'll keep watching your, your podcast because you've had some, um, amazing guests on and, uh, yeah, I look forward to, uh, continuing this journey with you.
0: Thanks. Yeah, it's good to know that we've got good, strong, well-educated men like you on our side. It's it's always refreshing to meet a, a new face and um, connect. Now, where's the best place for people to stay up to date with what you're doing? So I know you do a lot of writing for um, your wife, Sam. So would it be through her website or have you got your own website or...
1: Yeah, no, definitely. It's it's enough work just keeping up with all Sam's platforms. So yeah, I published my work on her um, platforms. And yeah, so the best best one to go to is um, drsambailey.com. So D-R-S-A-M-B-A-I-L-E-Y.com. Um, and of course, she's got her YouTube platform, her Odyssey platform and Telegram as well.
0: Wonderful. And I'll be sure to Link all of those websites in her Telegram channel in the show notes as well, so we can get more people following your good work. Thanks so much for coming on, Mark. I really appreciate it. And it was an absolute pleasure speaking with you.
1: Thank you, Daniel. It's great.
0: Thanks again. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. The ideas discussed on this podcast do not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional. If you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com forward slash podcast and join the discussion. Don't forget to follow us on social media. Until next time.